Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm pleased to be talking with SACSA Executive Director, Dr. Tony Coffin, and past SACSA Presidents, Dr. James Keneally and Dr. Jason Cassidy, about the SACSA organization. Specifically today, we're going to talk about how they as leaders help support SACSA and work with other leaders in the organization to navigate through two major crises, the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center in 2001 and the COVID-19 pandemic that started almost exactly 20 years later and which we are continuing to navigate today. So thank you all very much for joining me and for the conversation today. Before we all right. Before we start our conversation, I like to start each episode of the podcast with a get to know you portion, since we all have jobs, we all have experiences related to work, but we're people beyond just those, those uh, roles that we play and the titles that we hold. So if you wouldn't mind, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are outside of work. So hobbies, interests, what you're reading, watching, listening to, whatever you care to share. And Tony, if you don't mind starting us off, that would be great. All right, happy to do that. Um, I think I'd probably start with what I'm watching. Uh, there are two things I've been watching that I absolutely love. I love the new Amazon Prime Reacher series, the Lee Child book. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's one of the few things I binge watched. I don't normally binge watch a lot of things because I get bored easily. I literally watched all episodes in like two days. It was like amazing, amazing. Uh, and then I've gotten hooked, and I know this is going to show my age, I've gotten hooked on the PBS All Creatures Great and Small series because it does take me back to my childhood in reading those books. However, what I'm most excited about, March 7th, Dolly Parton, James Patterson, new book, Run, Rose, Run. I can't wait. I haven't read it, but I'm ready to read it. Wonderful. Jim, what, what about you? Who are you outside of the work that you do? I think you might be muted. What I enjoy reading right now, I like reading about history and leadership and biography. So I'm currently reading a book on the history of the Secret Service, which it's been, it's been interesting because I just finished a book on the history of the CIA. So that's something I'm reading. My hobbies, quite honestly, are I love to fly. I'm a, I'm a pilot. I'm a major in the uh, Civil Air Patrol, and I fly search and rescue for the Civil Air Patrol. And then I got two granddaughters, which when I need a boost of energy, I go and visit them. And uh, they're only about 17 miles away from us. And I always like listening to Jimmy Buck. That's, that's I'm a, a closet parrothead, I guess you can call it. So, um, but, you know, that's, that's what I'm about. But really the flying keeps me busy and, and that type. Wonderful. And you, Jason, what, what's your life like outside of work? Well, um, I have two sons. Uh, one is a, a sophomore in college and one is a sophomore in high school. So that keeps me uh, busy in the parenting role. Um, hobbies, I uh, still play basketball two, two to three days a week with a group during lunch on campus. So that's fun. Uh, when the weather gets a little nicer, I'll play golf uh, one to two times a week after work. We have a league at Furman that 
gets out there and walks nine holes, uh, which is uh, fun to get some fresh air and get some exercise. Um, I love to scuba dive. Uh, so my wife and I have tried to make a point to get to Jamaica every few years lately and uh, just went this past January, actually, and I went diving for six great days. So that was uh, that was a blast. And then I enjoy my oldest son loves movies. So we're into the Marvel movies and the Star Wars, all of that. So we always go hit those up together. And then my younger son is not into movies, but uh, outdoors. He, he loves yard work and landscaping, has his own business. So we'll get out there and do some of that together. Like Tony, I just finished watching the Reacher series uh, on Amazon Prime. That was cool. And I'm currently watching uh, 1883 on Paramount Plus, which is uh, a pretty good series. So if you're watching 1883, have you already watched like Yellowstone? Because that's the first right? Yeah, yeah, I'm already caught up on Yellowstone. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you all very much. Um, and now let's move into the professional realm. So just a couple of questions for you. If you'll share a little bit about your journey into and through student affairs and higher education. And then if there is, there's a person or some people might be colleagues, supervisors, or mentors who've been particularly instrumental in your career. And Jim, if you don't mind starting us this time. Sure. Um, gosh, like I said, this, this semester, a lot of reflection. Originally, I went to graduate school to be a uh, school psychologist. And after the first year there, I found that I really did not like it. And so I thought about what I enjoyed doing. And I remember being a hall director, uh, not a hall director, but a uh, residence hall president and participated in a lot of extracurricular in college and and uh, so I thought that sounded good I found that you can get a degree in it and that's what I did um, so that that's where it all started obviously you know after my first five years in the profession I served as a hall director at Northern Iowa and then at Emory University is when I made the commitment that I want this to be my career I really enjoyed the opportunity to impact young professionals lives and I had a you know, interesting start. I, uh, when I was an assistant director at Emory, I did facilities and budgets and those type. Didn't come up to traditional student development. And I realized about myself that I come more from a business component than the student development counseling component. I, um, my wife has a degree in counselor education. I realized that that is not my forte. So, uh, but just worked my way up and mostly in housing and then had opportunities along the way. And some good mentors and supervisors. My supervisor and, and a mentor at Emory, Ron Taylor, who's now retired, uh, really gave me the opportunity to get my doctorate and really encouraged me. And I'm sure there's times I came to work very tired because I continue to work full-time. I worked on my doctorate at nights. And, but I learned a lot from him about supervision, needing people. He was a two-time foot soldier for Vietnam and uh, learned a lot about uh, how to interact with people and how to build teams from him. And then I had the chance to go from there to Arkansas and uh, Dr. Suzanne Gordon, who a lot of people know is a former SACSA NASPA president. That's where I really uh, first got involved with SACSA through her mentoring. Uh, she gave me some opportunities to serve as an assistant vice chancellor when she was an interim vice chancellor and expanded my portfolio outside of housing. And then we had a new vice chancellor come on board, Dr. Jeanette Cross-Prizel, who uh, probably, one of the first supervisors I ever had who 
called me to task on some things and um, gave me some hard conversations, but I learned a lot from her. And to this day, I still reach out to her when I want some advice or um, when I need some uh, uh, pep talk. So you know, those are some people that really made a difference for me, but uh, as, as mentors and supervisors, and I just had the opportunity to work my way up and uh, I had the opportunity to serve as president at two universities and uh, because I felt student affairs people needed to be at the head of the table, not just at the table, uh, but also realized what my strengths and weaknesses were. I love the, the fundraise and the out of classroom or the uh, external lab. board relations and politics. Being in New York, I probably did not handle them as well as I could have. So, uh, but it was a great, to, it was a great experience. And then I came back to student affairs after about uh, six year hiatus. And I took a year off and served as superintendent of Catholic schools in Kentucky from that. But really two people that uh, are colleagues, Norb Dunkel, who a lot of people know, we met as hall directors our first year in the profession in 1982, give or take. You know, been friends ever since, and we keep in touch with each other. And then Dr. Claire Good, who Michelle, you you remember from Arkansas, she worked for me for 22 years at three different institutions, and I was really blessed. Uh, somebody always had my back, and somebody who really complimented my weaknesses. She was very strong at. And then probably the last person to remember my career is my wife. You know, we both sought out as hall directors. We met as hall directors, and she was very, um, I would patient as we moved nine universities in eight states and 21 different addresses since we've been married. Um, and Georgia is it. And as she's told me plenty of times, you go where you want. I'm staying in Georgia. So, but those are some of the individuals, but it's been a great career. And um, the most fun still is when you see young professionals. Uh, or undergraduate students become in the profession. And, uh, you know, Tony, I've talked a lot about that and I've tried to send undergraduates to different programs and conferences, but that to me, and I, as I tell my staff, um, don't look for the immediate rewards or gratifications. It, it's, it's, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And, you know, be confident what you're doing. And someday a student will come back and say, gosh, thank you. You're not gonna get it the same day. So uh, for the most that's, that's in a nutshell. Well, that's great. And I don't want to miss the opportunity to acknowledge. So I went to the University of Arkansas to pursue an MFA in creative writing. And there were a lot of reasons. That's a whole episode to itself about why that didn't work out. But I was a hall director in um, a graduate community while I was there. And I had a conversation with Dr. Keneally and he was like, well, what about student affairs? So, you know, everybody has that moment or that person where somebody said, have you thought about this? And so um, I thank you. I don't know if my students would thank you, but I thank you for <laughs> kind of putting me on the path. So um, I excited to have you here. Thank you. Jason, proud of you. Pardon me? Proud of you for all you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I, what if I really heard what you said? I just wanted you to say it again. Nah, I'm just kidding. Um, Jason, how about you? What's your sort of career into this work world been? Sure. So uh, I'm a native to Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, went to Bethany College in West Virginia, which is uh, folks are like, how did you find your way to West Virginia? And I just, I wanted to leave the state, um, try something new, but also went to play basketball. Um, 
So it's a division three school and small private liberal arts school. Um, had a great experience there, was involved in everything, uh, pre-med, biochemistry major, and uh, great plans to go be a doctor. And the uh, standardized MCAT test uh, changed my aspirations uh, in my late in my senior year and uh, had some folks who just kind of said what a lot of people in our profession say, have you thought about, you know, all the people that you work with on your campus uh, as an RA and, and, you know, student government and the newspaper and all of that, if you, you know, those people all have professional careers. And so I uh, got connected to Canisius College in Buffalo, New York, and a good colleague, a good, good peer friend of mine at, at Bethany uh, went, went to Canisius as well. We went the kind of the same route. Got a hall director assistantship and uh, loved my experience in graduate school and, and decided to stick with that. I, uh, my secondary plan, or I guess third, I guess it was my third route was a high school science teacher. <clears throat> I got accepted to UGA and I chose Canisius and student affairs over UGA and uh, teaching. Um, and, uh, in between grad school in the middle of my first and second year of grad school, got married. Um, my wife's an educator and, and we met at Bethany. So, uh, owe a lot to Bethany for both my fun experience and deep experience there, but also met my uh, wife there. Um, stuck with housing. I really enjoyed it. It, it, uh, you know, the student energy, the, the administrative piece of housing, uh, that's my strong suit, is being operational and uh, doing administrative work, organization, communication skills, all of those things. And so uh, the housing world fed uh, those strengths very well. And uh, definitely wanted to get out of Buffalo, New York. I don't think I said that's where Canisius is. Um, so I kept going further north, uh, right there on the Canadian border. And uh, after two very cold winters, job search in the South only, and long story short, ended up in Furman in 1999 as an area coordinator. Uh, didn't know it at the time, but Wayne King, I, was the, I didn't know he was the director at Furman, he hired me, but he was a past SACSA president. Um, and so uh, came to Furman and worked my way up through housing. Uh, for 12 years, ultimately being the director for three of those 12 and moved into the associate vice president being a student's role back in 2011. So in my 11th year, uh, 11th academic year of being a dean of students, and um, that's kind of been my tra career trajectory. Uh, one thing I'll insert in there that uh, happened early in my professional career was I decided to go ahead and pursue my doctorate. Uh, Clemson's about I don't know, at the time from Furman, about a 40 minute drive. And uh, so I worked on that. And that's where I met Tony Cawthon and Pam Havis and uh, others. And I had a uh, great experience uh, working on my doctorate there, doing that part time while I worked full time at Furman. Um, and that just kind of deepened my uh, professional role and in the intersection with, with uh, you know, the academic research. Uh, side of things and build some uh, really strong uh, relationships, friendships uh, there. So as far as uh, people who have been instrumental in my career, um, 
you know, there's moments along the way where, you know, people have um, been instrumental. But I think, too, which is interesting, I, I thought I was talking to a student about this the other day. I've only had two supervisors. Well, technically, I've had three professional supervisors in my career, which for someone that's been in the profession now for uh, 23 years, that's probably a little unusual. Uh, it's probably a lot unusual, actually. Uh, Wayne King being the first, and he he informed me three weeks after I started, he was moving over to development. So I, I put him on the list, but um, probably for many good reasons, and I hope Wayne listens to this podcast, I was not influenced by him uh, very much professionally <laughs> early on in my career. Uh, Boyd Yarbrough uh, was, my, uh, was Wayne's replacement. And Boyd is currently the VP at Lander University in Greenwood, South Carolina. Um, but I worked with Boyd uh, for, he was my supervisor for 10 years, I believe. And then Connie Carson um, as my uh, vice president when I was the director and now as a dean of students. Those are the only uh, technically two long-term supervisors that I've had in my career. And I do consider them mentors. They both um, have given me many responsibilities, opportunities uh, along the way, and, and they have always um, had conversations with me about, you know, what is my professional aspiration? How do we set you up to uh, be prepared for the next promotion or the next job opportunity? And so I owe that mindset, that, that supervisory mindset that both of them had, because not all supervisors have that. Um, you know, they were always looking out for me and helping to prepare me for whatever was going to be next. And so I, I very much value that and realize that I don't take that for granted. Great. Thanks a lot, Jason. Uh, Tony, how about you? Yeah, I'll, I'll be uh, brief because I know we really want to get to the stars, which are really Jason and Jim today. Uh, but for me, just some background, you know, my career span almost 40 years, uh, both as a practitioner and as a faculty member. So have been in both worlds, have done that at three institutions. Like Jason, I only had two supervisors in my life until I became a faculty member uh, at the University of Tennessee and at Mississippi State and at Clemson. So um, in the Tennessee, when I was a hall director, a graduate hall director. So I really think of Mississippi State and Clemson as the two places that really gave me my opportunity So uh, to do that. So primarily in housing, and then moved to be faculty uh, in terms of my career after 13 years in housing. So when I think about people that were important, you know, the, a lot of names come to mind. I'm like, Jim, there's a lot of people throughout your career, but uh, Melanie McClellan comes to mind. She gave me my first job, hired me when I'm not sure I really was the person she should have hired because <laughs> I really didn't have the skill and strength that she probably needed, but she took a chance and I'm forever grateful for her for doing that. And we've remained friends for, 40 years now, but uh, she she was the person who I learned probably the most from uh, early on in my career about good supervision, about treating people kindly, about um, doing the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is hard, <laughs> you know, and doing the ethical thing. So I think about Melanie as a person who really shaped me uh, as, a, as I think about who I am as a person uh, with that. So uh, that's a little bit about that. But again, I'm, I'll, I'll stop there and let us get really to, to Jim and Jason and their experience uh, with, with SAXA. 
Great. Well, and let's let's start exactly with that. Um, and whoever would like to begin, but could you talk a little bit specifically about your involvement with SAXA? How did you first get involved? What roles have you held? Um, and why is this an organization that you've chosen to stay connected to? Jason's okay. I'm, you know, uh, first of all, like I said, Dr. Suzanne Gordon really exposed me to SACS when I was at um, the University of Arkansas. But I think my first position, SACS, was treasurer and uh, took over for Harold Holmes. And we made the transition from paper books to electronic ledgers. Uh, then working with the executive council, had a chance then to become president. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, worked chairing the foundation. And when I took over the foundation, we found we had a little oops that we didn't have our 501c3 status and we had to renew that. Um, then became a Saxa scholar and I was viewed as the people did everything else in Saxa and that's why we push you out, make you a Saxa scholar. Um, so that, that was something. I guess one of the, the major accomplishments I thought besides the uh, conference was the Blue Ribbon Task Force that we did during that time. And that was a long time ago. And, you know, Jason's thinking back a couple of years. I'm trying to, when I got your note going, okay, that's 21 years ago. I hope I can remember some things, uh, what we did. But um, so those are roles I had. The reason I love SACSA, quite honestly, I think it's, it's really a way to engage young professionals in the uh, associate or in the profession. You know, and Aspen ACPA are, are wonderful, but for a young professional to get engaged, graduate students, even undergraduate students, it's a little bit harder in those associations. And SACSA has always reached out to young professionals and new professionals and a chance to make them feel valued. And I think that's important because to the future of our profession, and if we don't engage young professionals, new professionals right away, we're gonna lose them in, uh, from the business. Uh, and so that's why I think SACSA to me is very, very important. Also like the breadth of its regionalism, you know, from Texas over to Florida up to Maryland. Um, you have what, three different accreditation agencies within the SACS region, maybe four. And you know you have a lot of diversity in types of institutions, um, individuals, uh, commitment to diversity and inclusion as part of the association. And so those are some of the reasons I chose to stay with SACSA. And um, what I do every year for a long time now is I sponsor undergraduate student every year to go to the SACSA conference. We have a little competition, they make an application. So always one young professional, one, um, excuse me, one undergraduate student. Even when I was in Maine, I had the opportunity, I sent one of my graduate undergraduate students down to Saxon, and she ended up going to Clemson for uh, graduate school. So that's, that's, that's why Saxon. Wonderful. Jason, what about your experience? Yeah, um, Dr. Pam Havis, I mentioned earlier, she uh, was my dissertation chair at, at uh, Clemson. And she introduced me to SACSA uh, when she nominated me for the Dissertation of the Year Award back in 2006. And I actually uh, was awarded that and, and it needed to go to the conference to get the award. Uh, so I went to Jacksonville for the first time, not knowing a lot about SACSA and just had a great experience and ran into colleagues that I knew and didn't know they were a part of that organization. Um, and so I just got a lot more out of it than just going there to get a, a, an award. It, it ended up being my professional home. And so really over the last 16 years, um, I've been given opportunities to 
volunteer at conferences, to serve as the sponsors and exhibitors chair for, for numerous years. Um, I was the conference and registration chair uh, or the conference registration chair one year. Um, I've been a reviewer on the College Student Affairs Journal um, in the past. So, you know, all of those volunteer opportunities led me to serving the association for the past four years in the president presidential cycle, I'll call it. Um, and I, it's been a four-year cycle instead of three, uh, thanks to COVID. Um, we rolled all of our positions forward for a year uh, last year, but uh, maybe to my knowledge, I don't know, I might be the only president to have served for two consecutive years. Tony's a historian. I, I was going to say, yeah, Jason, you, you have the distinction of being the only person who served Two years. Distinctions um, yeah. so, word for it. <laughs> um, you know, I love SACSA because of the professional networking that honestly has led to some really strong friendships. Um, it's really cool to have both professional colleagues that I can call on at any time to benchmark, vent, what's your best practice, those kind of things. But then we just, it's just, relationships too, you know, what, how's your kids, how's your family, vacation, we love getting together at the conference. Um, so, you know, SACSA to me is the right size, uh, big enough that we have really great uh, sessions at conferences and keynote speakers, um, but small enough that it uh, feels like a family, you know people, you recognize people, you kind of don't get, you don't, uh, get lost in the in the masses of the national organizations. Um, it's a generalist association, which I like. Um, so there's a wide array of functional areas and expertise present. Um, I love the connection to our academic partners, our faculty colleagues, which a lot of associations don't have that type of connection uh, uh, and and involvement in the leadership. Uh, you know, sometimes some associations have faculty connections, but they're not always in the leadership um, of the association. And SACSA is open to that. Um, it's diverse, as Jim already mentioned, and it's provided me, and I know it provides many others with a lot of leadership opportunities, especially early on in your career. Wonderful. So there were major events that each of you navigated. Um, if you can, thinking outside of those specific events, what were some sort of issues of the day? Um, and Jason, I know for you it wasn't that long ago, but it seems like a lifetime ago when we were thinking about things that didn't include some sort of COVID aspect. So, and again, whoever would like to go first, but just kind of before the major issues sort of consumed some of our work and and leadership, what were some other things that were going on while each of you moved into your presidential positions? I, uh, you know, what's interesting is back then, uh, you know, like I said, 21 years ago, Saxo was not as flush with the money as they are now. And I think, uh, you know, Joe Buck, heck of a job. We had a great executive council. A lot of people are very committed to the association, but you know, outside of that, I think some of the issues we're dealing with, um, we're still dealing with in higher education. Uh, mental health issues of our students and 
you know, those just keep changing and evolving, but that's still in the forefront of our conversations. I think the inclusion piece uh, is still in the forefront of our conversation. We've been talking about these issues for since I've been in the profession. I don't think we'll ever stop talking about them because we got to keep pulling back the onion layers and, and deepen, uh, digging deeper into these issues and conversations on what can we and cannot do and how do we react and how do we move forward. Um, for SACS, I think we're still debating, you know, our identity with NASPA Region 3. You know, we're, you know, we're on again, we're off again. Um, the foundation was just coming back into full play. Um, I think the journal. So I think we're, you know, we're on an infancy, but we're probably at a good teenage adolescent period. And, uh, you know, a lot of those uncertainties with the association, there was talk of merging, was there, there was talk of, you know, are we still serving the needs? Is there still the needs because of all the progressions we made in the profession? Um, and and you know, again, conversations we've been still having, and we're always reevaluating. You know, we talked about people, you know, had limited travel funds, they had limited, you know, how much professional association, how many professional associations can they, they belong to, and how do we make our brand distinct from other associations? I think Jason made a great point. You know, is a generalist and we're committed to the young professional. We had to really evaluate because we were debating at times how do we keep the seniors involved but bring the new generation along? And that is a hard mix because we, the gamut of professionals, look for things very differently from an association. I know I look very differently now than I did 30 years ago. So I think that's some of the things with regard to looking outside of just the association and before. 9-11 hit, but uh, those are questions that we were asking. Great. It always fascinates me to hear and read history of, you know, in a profession or things. I know Tony's shared some documents in the past from SACSA and I've read some stuff and to hear Jim describe, you know, SACSA and some of the issues 20 years ago, it, it's not a whole lot different <laughs> um, today. And, you know, I think there, you could look at that and say, well, you know, so are we not making any progress or are we like, <laughs> why is that? But the reality is, is the human condition and the things that we, you know, that are important to people, um, they don't at the core change a lot. And so, you know, finances and well-being and, and um, access and uh inclusion and all of those are all things that you can go all the way back. The groups might've changed, right? Uh, women weren't included in higher education until a certain time. And, um, you know, we use different terms. Well-being probably wasn't a big term 20 years ago, but the same, the, 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 what it means now is what they, what, what they were trying to accomplish then was the same. So, I don't know. It's just always interesting to me. I, you know, the first thing that made me laugh is, is when you asked that question, Michelle, I was like, were there issues before COVID? <laughs> I don't go back that far. <laughs> that far. Um, and so that made me chuckle, but yeah, as I think back to what I was, as I was drafting my vision, you know, when you go up as the incoming president at the end of the conference and you share, what are your goals for the upcoming year? You know, this was for me not too long ago, uh, back in 2019, uh, it was to define SACS's value proposition in an increasingly competitive market for professional development opportunities, 
It was to refocus our efforts on member recruitment and retention and to enhance the undergraduate graduate student symposiums uh, and the CSAO summit by reintroducing the grad prep program fair. You know, Jim said essentially, I think some of the same things uh, as he was entering um, in his presidential role. And so, you know, navigating the how do we how do we serve our senior uh, student affairs professionals? How do we serve our new and graduate professionals? So um, those were the those were the quote unquote issues, I guess, of the association as I was uh, coming into the uh, president role uh, back in 2019. One one thing that you know, along with that, we always when we work with college students, we talk about the generational issues and how the generations change. And the association and us have had to adapt the same thing to the young, the professionals. Our professionals are different generations as well. So all the changes we're trying to make on the college campus with regard to, you know, the different generations, we're doing the same thing within the association. And it, it's challenging at times because how I look at something is very different than how a 25-year-old new professional looks at it. So that's something I think the association and the profession is continuously um, trying to balance. Yeah, it's funny, as I listen to you all talk, I think about, you know, my years present, I think about what I thought was a crisis really wasn't a crisis. You know, mine was membership. You all had real crisis. I mean, that, that derailed your great plan that you just laid out, Jason. <laughs> it laid it, you laid it out beautifully. And then COVID happened. You know, Jim had great plans and then 9-11, you know, and I'm, I'm, I feel like, wow, mine was just membership. Woo. I mean, you know, it makes it seem so minor, but I listened to the theme, branding, membership, engagement, those are common for the last 40 years, you know, and, and that's an interesting, I don't know, it just struck me as interesting to listen to you both talk about that and thinking about how uh, we, we've had to readapt those, but it's the same topic. Well, and real quick, I know we move on, but What's fascinating, right? Those are the that's what we do on our campuses, right? The the key issues are enrollment, marketing, you know, your niche in the higher ed environment, access. It's all you know what we do in our running a professional organization association is in a lot of ways. It's like I leave my day job and we go to our our volunteer job, and it's the same stuff. Um, it's just different, you know, a little bit different twist. That'd be a great article, Jason. You need to write that up. <laughs> so let's let's start with um, Dr. Keneally's term and and September 11th. But um, you know that is for people who are old enough to remember. That's one of the defining moments. You know where were you when? Um, I was living in New Hampshire. I was at home. I didn't have a television at the time but I was listening to public radio all the time. So I was listening to public radio as they announced what was happening. So that's sort of my, and then for me, it's a blur after that. I mean, it was just constant engagement with news coverage and, and updates. Um, but what about you all? Where, where were you kind of, how did, you come to hear about the event, what were the days that followed like for each of you? you know, for me, I remember very clearly sitting in uh, Dr. Jeanette Cross-Bazell's office. We were having a staff meeting when it came on. 
and being from New York and living 14 miles out in New York City, it hit home because my brother only worked two blocks from the World Trade Towers. Yeah. And my sister, um, the hospital she worked in Maryland is where they took the Pentagon people. And Pennsylvania is where I have another sister. So it became very personal very quickly. Um, mostly my brother because we wanted to make sure he was okay. And then we had five students at our dean of education having to be in one of the towers and luckily got out. So th there was a lot of mixed emotions going on. You know, me from um, just my homeland where, where I grew up and then our students and the reaction and our international students uh, is something that we never seen in my lifetime up until that point. You know, I remember, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I was only five, six years old, you know, and those type of things, but this is real uh, from a different perspective. And so, had a lot of mix of how to take care of the job, our students, our international students, uh, but also until I heard from my family, worrying about what was going on there, what was, you know, those type of things. Um, so a lot of mixed emotions for me on 9-11. On Excuse me, I remember every Tuesday we had our, our um, housing departmental meetings and I was in my second year uh, professionally back in, at that time. And we came out of that meeting and we had a little tube TV that sat in the corner of the office that just kind of had news scrolling through it or whatever. Nobody paid it any attention. Um, and we, we, we all kind of gathered and sat, we had a student, I remember we had some student workers or was a couple of RAs that were coming to check their mailbox. And we all just kind of crowded around that little TV and just sat there mesmerized. Um, you know, I wasn't in a campus leadership role at that time, so I can't speak to really how the university behind closed doors navigated um, and, and managed that crisis. But I do remember as a student support role, you know, thinking through and being asked to think through with our leadership about you know, our international students, our, our Muslim students, um, and getting prepared for some of the um, issues we anticipated as a result of all that in the days after. Nobody knew at the time, obviously, what had happened yet, um, other than the, the incidents itself, but information came out over time. Those were the things that I remember being engaged in. And then the other just real vivid thing I remember uh, after that was just the American flags that were flown all around campus on cars. You couldn't even buy them anymore because they were all sold out. I mean, in people's yards. I can't remember in my, my, my lifetime, another time in history where I saw so much patriotism uh, for our country. Um, so that, that sticks out in my mind too. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny the things we remember. You know, what I remember is the phone ringing all day long, the phones ringing, people calling to check on people. You know, we, I was a faculty member by that point, and, you know, we had students from New York, and people were calling to check. You know, in those days, we didn't have this sort of instant communication like we do now. <laughs> you know, we were relying on the phone call to call someone and say, and when they didn't answer, you panicked, you know, and they could have just been at the grocery store. But I remember just sitting in my office and hearing all these phones just ringing, knowing that everyone was calling people they knew 
taking phone calls, um, managing emotions. Uh, I, I do remember all those phones just ringing, 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 ringing. I'll never forget that sound of, of sitting in Old Main and just hearing almost everybody's phone ringing simultaneously and then keep ringing all day long. Um, and you knew, wow, something's going on and something's happening because the phones didn't normally do that. <laughs> you know, uh, they might have rang once or twice and then, but it wasn't that kind of day. It was, it was a crazy kind of day with that in terms of that. Well, and then with the pandemic, it was different because we were aware of it and it sort of emerged and evolved. And um, I know for, well, maybe several of us, I was at SCCPA when Clemson announced, don't come back after spring break, you know, we'll kind of figure this out. And, and in planning that conference, we were going back and forth. I was driving to the conference expecting someone to say, no, let's not. So um, what about for each of you that, again, it's a, a, an entirely different type of event, but um, in a slower emergence, there wasn't like a single defining moment in the same way, but what were your experiences around um, COVID and it emerging in, in higher ed? I think for us, our initial was, you know, this is gonna be a short-term thing. You know, we'll get through short-term problems. We, we, we've handled the, uh, the blips in the screen before and, um, and when it became longer term, when it became political, when it became, you know, uh, how you had to respond based on whether you're a Republican or a Democratic state, I think really heightened it in terms of, you know, how we deal with this. And what was good is we have some very good mental health and our, uh, our um, health centers and people who knew their stuff and our emergency response people really, they were able to do the boots on the ground Why? You know, a lot of us at the, the senior level dealt with the, the um, direction from the system or the direction from others and to try and let them do what they needed to do to serve the students in the campus community. But I don't think any of us anticipated being as long as, as it still is. Um, we just thought it was okay, one of those things and we'll deal with it and move on. Yeah, I, Michelle, I was uh, at the SCCPA conference. You all had invited me, and I know Tony was there too uh, because it was the 50th. I remember it was the 50th anniversary of the association, and you were inviting back past presidents. And I had served in that role back in the early 2000s, and so I was excited to you know be at the beach. We we're at Myrtle Beach, and uh, like you, it was kind of like. You know, we knew this was happening in other places. Was it coming to the U.S.? But weren't really, you know, sure where this was all headed. Um, but then, you know, the request to be our emergency management team. So I remember being at SCC, being in Myrtle at the beach and then leaving sessions and things to go sit on Zoom meetings. And, you know, I think the first real uh, concerns that were coming up were about our students who were studying away. Like that was the first phase of all this. Do we need to bring our students back from certain countries where they're seeing some spikes of COVID? And then of course it all kind of morphed from there into telling all of our students not to 
uh, come back um, after spring break. And um, so, uh, but that, you know, it's interesting. That was the last conference I attended uh, until SAXA uh, last November. So that was kind of the bookended for me, the bookends of the conference along with the pandemic were, were those two uh, particular conferences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what was interesting about being at that conference with the folks from a variety of institutions, and we even had past presidents from different from out of state. You know, Haven Hart was there from Auburn, and Bo Seagreaves there was from Florida, I'm from Georgia, was listening to how all the institutions were responding differently. And it was like, oh my gosh, it could make your head hurt. This group is masking, this group is calling their students back, this group is doing nothing yet. It was like we were all trying to compare notes and none of us were doing the same thing. And you thought, do we really know what the heck we're doing? So just listening to that uh, inconsistency, uh, a message was an interesting uh, juxtaposition to be that day, uh, just to think about that. So as, as the events unfolded and as you're leading these organizations, you definitely have concern for the people, um, the members and um, the students and communities that they serve. There's concern for the organization um, and then there are like significant financial implications. So, and especially, you know, as you're, you shared already sort of how do we, what, what is our unique contribution as an organization? Um, and Dr. Keneally, you talked about it not being in a really strong position at that point anyway. How did you navigate all of those pieces? Like, and again, I know this isn't a, well, we did this on this day and it was all reserved. So, um, so I'm interested in your storytelling around this. You know, the biggest thing obviously was, you know, like we said, concern for individuals and recognizing, you know, as a state started reacting differently on travel bans and all of a sudden, remember from 9-11 to the conference, it was only two months. So we did not have a lot of, of planning time. We had to react quickly. And so, you know, obviously we had Joe Buck as the executive director. We had a great executive council, but really looking at, okay, the what if scenarios, you know, what do we need to do um, if X amount of people don't come? What does the contract say with the hotel? What, you know, really trying to get a handle on what were the potential ramifications if we had to cancel the conference or, you know, didn't meet our minimums and those type of things. So really getting a good sense because, and Tony may remember better than I, but I think at that time we had about $60,000 in the bank for Saxon. And if we had to cancel the conference, we would have lost $65,000, which pretty much would have wiped us out. So we worked hard as an executive team, communicating uh, emails and otherwise, you know, we understand the situation, but if there's anything you can do, and then I really um, dealt with the hotel and said, you know, this is what we need. Um, this is a problem here. And they were still, you know, they were still evolving too. And as a hospitality industry, how are they going to respond to these type of situations? And I think a lot has been learned from 9-11 now with the pandemic flu. I think hotels and hospitality react differently to these type of uh, national crises that, that we have. But having a chance to sit down with the hotel, how can we cut, what can we do? 
And how do we make this work? And what is the minimum we need? And just be very clear and open with this membership. This is where we're at. If we don't do this, this, and this, we may perish as an organization because we just don't have the financial resources to, to do. And I think it was a, it was a, uh, a moment for us as an association and Tony uh, and others and Joe and Bill Kelso all said, okay, we need to figure out a different investment strategy that we're not in this predicament yet. And so that was a good outcome of it. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, and I'm going to be going by memory, I think we made $1,000 on the conference, so $1,000. Yeah, I was fortunate to be Jim's conference chair, uh, <laughs> which, then, which then was the program chair. And, and I remember Jim and I being on the phone probably daily with our local arrangements folks and because people were canceling left and right. And, and even they wanted to come, their universities weren't letting them. Right. You know, so it wasn't like they didn't want to be supportive. And there were some people who probably just said, keep my money, <laughs> you know, because we know you need it, but we can't come physically. And I remember I remember that happening more than not. And, you know, as I think as I reflect back on the history of Saxa, having had the opportunity to serve as a historian before my current role, I don't know that this organization would have survived. Had it not been because of Jim. His work with that hotel, and I get emotional just thinking about it, his work with that hotel saved our butt. Because it, I was never more proud that he was as outspoken and direct and <laughs> assertive as he is, because it saved us. And I think when I think of the pivotal moments in Saxon's history, that was one of them. He's right, we were about to go under. And, and you know, there were other pieces happening with people morning in the lobby and taking care of each other and supporting. But what I remember is Jim's fast forward stewardness of we're not going to let this organization die. And I'm going to take on this massive hotel. And he did it and did it well. Those New York skills came in handy. <laughs> <laughs> they did. And I, I was never more proud. I know, and I was so relieved I didn't have to do it. I was like, oh my God, thank God this is Jim. Let me go, let me go be the let me go be the good cop. Jim yeah, needs but I, the bad cop. And I think Tony makes a great point. Our association, our members wanted to do everything they could, uh, but they were dictated uh, a lot yeah. of times. And we didn't have the, the benefit back then of Zooms and team meetings and virtual, you know. I think I still had a flip phone, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but it, it, the, the association came together and really rise to the occasion. And you know, the same with Jason and, and COVID. You know, as a president, you look forward to the capstone being the, the conference. And you know, it wasn't the bells and whistles we had other conferences, but you're proud of how the association, the members came together. And I think it was a good lesson for our young professionals on this, the stewardship of, if you're gonna be part of something, how do you help um, take care of that? So. Well, and, and the support of your colleagues and your friends, you know, I, I remember distinctly Pam Moon and I and Jim and lots of people that, you know, the probably 180 people that were there, um, sitting in the lobby and just comforting and supporting and talking. It really became more about that than it did about SAXA. It became mm -hmm. about humankind and, taking care of your people. And SACSA provided us an opportunity to do that for those of us that, that could be there. 
um, you know, trying to find some good out of a crisis that, that where most of us, the world had sort of stopped and we're like, okay, it's been two months. How do we support one another? And I remember sitting in the lobby and it became more of a, of a, of a therapeutic kind of, uh, let's help one another through this. Because there were people who had some had had relatives that had died in 9/11 at that conference. There were others of us who knew no one, but it still was painful. Um, but I do remember that um, that 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 coming together as a Saxa family, and I don't use that word lightly, but coming together to support and keep the people emotionally nourished, while also keeping the organization financially solvent to be able to live another day. So we can get to Jason's crisis down the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, you set up the perfect transition. So, Jason, there may be things that sound familiar from what was just shared, but talk through your experience. Yeah, I mean, this whole podcast is really just a, a mirror <clears throat> of each other, right? I mean, it, it all the same things Jim and, and Tony are just talking about. Uh, played themselves out for different reasons, but in the same way, uh, the past couple of years uh, with SAXA. You know, we were at mid year in Norfolk in February. Uh, COVID was starting to become a thing. And, you know, in our uh, April meeting, we're talking about uh, we've got a contract coming up that has a cancellation date in May. Uh, with a penalty uh, for the for the 2020 conference, and the the least penalty uh, moment would be, you know, we would still have to pay a price, but it would be we'd have to make that decision in May. Well, if you think back to that period of time, I think Jim or Tony said this. You know, we I think it was Jim. We were thinking this was going to be a you know we get through the spring semester, this this virus burn itself out. You know, we'll figure out the summer and then hopefully get back into normal in the fall, but, you know, you're talking about $76,000 on the line uh, for if you just outright cancel the conference. And at that time, the state hadn't, uh, the state of Virginia hadn't declared anything that would warrant the, the hotel canceling the conference, which means that that burdens on the association. Of course, if we wait too long, right, you, you start planning this thing in March and really getting into the, the thick of it um, starting in March. And so every month we delay, we, we don't want to ask all these volunteers who are strapped on their campuses trying to navigate a pandemic with no playbook. And, you know, um, but at the same time, if you wait too long, you're not going to have a conference anyway, because you can't do registration and call for programs and all those things that take time to do. So it was this kind of conundrum that we were playing out on our campuses was also playing out in the association with the same people, the same leadership that was trying to figure out some of this same, same stuff on their own campuses at the same time. So, um, you know, ultimately uh, our, our Jim Keneally in 2020 was Jane Adams Dunford and she worked with that hotel and because the hotel's in a similar boat, right? They're, they're not, knowing, they don't know what they're going to expect in the fall. They know that immediately right now in May, you know, April and May, they had canceled, the, you know, no hotels and, and conferences and things were all getting canceled then, but, but they don't know what's coming six, seven, eight months, 
months later. So um, Jane worked her magic and we kind of navigated this. Uh, we'll pay a very reduced, be willing to pay a very reduced penalty if we would sign the contract, roll it forward to 2021 and agree to come in 2021. You know, again, making, we made that decision in May, which, you know, if y'all think, if anyone who's been a part of this, you get, there are no winners. Like every decision an institution, an organization has made throughout this entire pandemic, you always have very vocal uh, groups and individuals and constituents on both ends of the spectrum. And we were kind of worried about that with our association. And you know what was just really a breath of fresh air is the resounding support that the association responded with in May to our decision to cancel the conference um, and, and saying, you know, we respect that decision, that makes sense. And honestly, I think a lot of that probably comes from the fact that what they were experiencing on their own campuses and the stress that we all know with the unknown that was causing us in our day jobs. And so that's just one less stressor we removed from everyone's table. So it was both for us a financial decision, but also a people decision in that even if we were gonna plow forward, we weren't confident our volunteer leadership had the bandwidth to actually plan a conference. And the reality is, is, is we did not, um, as, the, as obviously the pandemic progressed. So, um, you know, we did have some, some tools at our disposal that Jim did not 20 years previously. And that is, you know, uh, websites and I was able to do a video message to the membership instead of a letter or an email so it could have a little bit more personal tone and touch which I think can be received differently than just reading a, a template email um, you know text messaging and uh, zoom for our leadership team to be able to get together and have some in-depth conversations and look each other in the eyes and do all of that that you couldn't do when when Jim and his team were making those decisions Previously, and the final thing I'll say is, the previous leadership of Saxa absolutely made the decision for us to cancel that conference in May a much uh, easier one because we were in a we are in a much better financial situation as an association today and 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 you know back in 2020 than we were um, as as Jim and Tony were describing. So you know I. Kudos to our predecessors who set SACSA up for this very moment, which is why they did this, because of their experience with almost going under. They, they changed the financial model to say, one day, something else is going to happen, and we don't want that leadership team to be in that same uh, space, and, and we were not. That, that even if we had to make the decision and lose $76,000, that was a much less stressful decision than Jim's decision to say we would have, we would have negative dollars. Saxa would not have had negative dollars um, if we just outright canceled and didn't renew a sign a contract for 2021. So kudos to them. Jason, Jason, how did you all decide to all serve a second term? I don't know that I've heard that story. I've heard that story. <laughs> yeah, that was another interesting conversation. So the other thing that after we made the conference decision, the other thing that really dawned on me was, you know what? Um, I think, Jim, you mentioned this. One of the kind of the, the grand finale of your leadership uh, experience, your volunteer experience is the conference, right? And being able to um, 
put that together for your colleagues and your association and association. And so, you know, we were all just kind of talking and I raised the, <laughs> the issue. I said, all right, so we've canceled the conference. Um, our term, our, our roles pretty much would be the tenure of, we, we kind of helped us navigate COVID, which was important. Um, but, you know, we do some, some non-conference programming, doing some Zoom webinars and things, but then that's it. You know, we, we, would, we would have no transition meeting, the passing of the gavel gravel, all that. I mean, we could do that a year later, but you, you'd have multiple um, prep, you know, you'd be doing it for two, two um, groups. So uh, we said, I just asked the group, I said, would you all be willing to consider like rolling both the elected and the appointed positions forward a year, hoping that in 2021, we'd be able to have a conference and people could do what they actually signed up to do, right? Nobody signed up to do what we did in 2020, both in our day, both in our day jobs and in our volunteer jobs. Um, and that's kind of a highlight of your career, right? To be able to do those. So, but we had to get approval from the association. You just, elected leaders can't just uh, appoint themselves <laughs> reelected or, or whatever. Uh, interestingly, the bylaws don't really, they're not really built for that. So we did, we did, we, if you'll remember, we put the vote out and explained it, put it out to the association, the association approved it, but it's one of those moments in Sachs's history where there really isn't technically guidance for, for making that decision. Um, so we were just going to lean into the trust of our association and let them vote and say whether they wanted to do that or not. And that vote passed and everything else played out and, and worked out. But um, the other piece that was going on behind the scenes was we were also working through Joe announcing that he was going to transition out of the executive director role and putting that whole process into place in 2021 um, simultaneously. Um, and so late 2020, early 2021 and making that transition. So rolling the executive board for elected board forward and another year would give us that space to do that without having the transition leadership in the middle of something that was a pretty involved process. So. so you all have alluded to the the next couple of questions that I have, but are there other things that you would want to add about communication or like talents that you saw people bring into the work as you navigated through things. Um, anything that, um, I mean, there were lots of surprises, right? But were there, were there opportunities or, or positive surprises that kind of came from navigating these situations, either for the organization or for you as individuals or for um, members and future leaders. And then I'll, I'll tag this on the end. I'm also interested in how did you hand off the organization to who came next? Because um, really probably in both situations, we're still in recovery mode, right? And I would imagine the, the transition after you were done, Jim, was the same thing. I mean, we didn't, it, so, 
there's like 17 questions there. You can answer whatever you want to. Well, I think one of the things everybody talked about is communication. What, no matter how you do it, you know, whether it's text, phone calls, now with Zoom. So I think communication was the key because a lot of people were engaged, not just the executive group, but Tony mentioned you have the program chair, you have the local rangers chair, you have uh, sponsors and exhibitors, you have a lot of different people involved in, in putting on this type of conference. And people had how this was going to impact them. So I think that communication is key. Second, I think rely, as Tony said, rely on the strength of others. You know, you didn't have to do it all. You know, I knew what my strengths are and, and how I, I go about solving issues and problems, but other people brought in the, you know, the, the human aspect in other ways. So again, having that team approach, I think lastly, it really reinforced to us as a, a association executive council is we need to be prepared for, again, something in the future. Didn't know what it was, when it could happen, but it, it just was too tenuous. And we had to make some difficult decisions. You know, we always talk about keep membership low or membership um, dues low and the, the ebbs and flows of membership by state. Really had to come up with a very long range strategic, how do we position the, the association that can withstand another event like this and so I, I gave us, this is my opinion, but I think it forced us to stop thinking about a executive council term of one to two to three years of how does each executive council lay a piece of the foundation for the association to continue to move forward. It wasn't, we didn't say, okay, well, I'm done, it's over. No, how do we position the association for that next set of leaders? been given some reflective thought to this since you invited us to participate in this podcast, Michelle. And, you know, one of the things that just I tried to always keep at the forefront of all of this is you can't, you can't run a professional associate, a volunteer association in the same way that you run your department or your institution. These are, the entire association is built on volunteers. And, you know, um, it's only as strong as uh, the volunteers and the leadership in that moment and uh, their, their capacity to actually invest in what they signed on to invest. And what, what came, came, became clear really early on in all of this is, this was an at where SACSA volunteering is a is a bright spot in people's professional lives and something that brings them joy and something that maybe actually is an escape from their day to day um, work that might be stressful to them. Um, I was noticing for myself and for others that actually this was feeling exactly like what work would feel like sometimes when you're stressed and there's these expectations and deadlines and if you miss them and that's not what that's not what this SACSA volunteer experience is supposed to be like and so I felt like we needed to change that model pretty quickly so that we weren't adding to people's uh, stress um, in that in that very stressful time for for everyone in their professional 
and personalized because that's the other piece, right? You have this professional volunteer, you know, professional development piece. But people's personal lives were a wreck, right? Schools and K-12 and kids and people getting sick and early in the pandemic, loved ones dying. And I mean, it, so long story short, we needed to, to de-escalate that, um, which is another important reason for canceling the conference in 2020, um, because it, it wasn't going to achieve uh, what we wanted it to achieve from a professional development standpoint for our, for our volunteer leadership. Um, you know, Jim's on, on the money. I mean, he's been doing this work a long time. Communication is always 95% of success of anything, or in the other way, we usually mess it up and that's what creates problems. Um, but, you know, one thing that was important to me, and I, I kind of ended a lot of communications, both to the association, but also to our, after our Zoom meetings and things, is just be kind, be patient, and be gracious um, with each other, because we were working with colleagues, more so probably our students and families in many cases, who were not extending that level of kindness and patience and um, graciousness. So we, we needed to give it to each other, <laughs> uh, fuel that, feed that for each other because we weren't getting it in our, in our day jobs. Yeah, that, that's so interesting, Jason. I hadn't thought about that because that's what happened in, in, in Jim's era. I saw those people in the lobby do that. Whereas y'all were doing it, you know, 20 years later in a, in some ways in a different format, either via Zoom or via, you know what I mean? Whereas Jim's, they were doing it physically in a lobby of a hotel, but it's the same concept. Take care of one another. And that's what SACSA does well. If SACSA does that really well is takes care of its members and its people. Um, and a crisis probably brought that out in us, but yeah, such an interesting, I never thought about that till you said those words. Mm-hmm. Well, as we wrap up, I wanna be respectful of everyone's time. Any words of advice? Um, I feel like you've already shared so many things about thinking forward and um, lessons learned and things like that, but what what would you kind of like to leave listeners with as far as your experiences? First of all, I think, you know, it's a testament to our profession that we can rise as professionals and in colleagues and human beings uh, to overcome adversity. And I think that's one of the greatest uh, lessons I learned. And, and I try to help young you know, I talked to my entire division about a week or so ago. I said, you're gonna have blips in higher education. You know, I said, I, you know, in the last 15 years, I've dealt with 10 budget cuts. I said, it's gonna happen. You know, how you respond to it, it's not the end of the world. You, you work together, you communicate, you you set, you take out your ego, and and uh, you will overcome because this is not the last of it. You know, I'll, after I'm gone and buried, this thing's going to arise, and people just ah, how did they deal with it? Well, you will deal with it. And you did have a question on your your thing, Michelle. What is the hope right now? We have some very talented young professionals, and I really, you know, as I looked at my division after reflecting, you know. I am optimistic about where our profession goes. I'm concerned about higher education 
and the politicization of higher education, but I really do believe student affairs has a strong future because of the young professionals. And the only caveat I would put in there is look at where we've been before deciding where we need to go and you know, recognize the people before you um, maybe not did everything right, but there's a, a lot of things you can learn from understanding the history. That's a good summary, Jim. I'm not sure I really didn't add what I can even add. I'm like, Jim has spoken and I'm like, okay, that was good. <laughs> Absolutely. I, the lesson learned for me um, or word of advice or, or whatnot is, especially I think for maybe our, our newer professionals, um, our personal lives absolutely affect our professional lives. Um, and those who think they can compartmentalize those two worlds, I think, you know, some, I think you can do that maybe for a short period, but what COVID, what the pandemic really exposed um, in the workplace is that cannot, that can't be sustained uh, for a long period of time. And nothing has really, in my experience, my lifetime has exposed that more than what's happened the last two years. Um, and institutions are having to come to term and not, it's not higher ed, yes, but organizations. I mean, all, all across the globe are having to come to terms with that. So we have to change that mindset somehow. And in American society, that's a hard mindset to, to change, I think, but we're faced with it. Um, and we're experiencing it now, the great resignation and you know the changing workforce and new generation, all of those things. But you know, my advice or lesson learned is we have got to figure out how to prioritize within these two worlds and realize that they intersect with each other. And um, you can't just, well, this is my professional and this is my personal over here. And I think a lot of people really try have, have done that in their careers. Um, and that's just not what I'm seeing um, as a result of all of this. And then as far as the future of the profession, um, you know, I think SACSA has an opportunity to really think through from a professional development standpoint, how do we navigate, you know, a, a decreasing enrollment in the coming years with the, just the total population in this age range going to college, which is going to play itself out. And then going to graduate school, which is going to impact our masters and our graduate prep programs, which means, you know, our our incoming workforce is probably going to have to come from some different sectors than just um, grad prep programs as we're typically accustomed to. So, how do we, as a, I think that that's an opportunity then for SACSA to fill a professional development void um, for some of our folks coming into the student affairs profession who um, haven't come up through the traditional student development um, uh, prep program. So uh, I think I think we need to we need to give some real time to thinking about the future of our workforce in student affairs. Because student affairs isn't going away. Now what what the pandemic has absolutely exposed as well is uh, I've seen a much greater appreciation for student services and student affairs over the last two years as a result of this than at any other time. So now we need to kind of capitalize that on that and figure out how do we, how do we keep with the changing 
demographic and the changing landscape around um, our workforce. So um, kind of building on that, and again, Jim, you talked about a hope for the future being the the new professionals coming into the work. Are there other hopes that you have? You know, what is bringing you sort of a sense of hope and peace or positive anticipation as opposed to the sort of period of negative anticipation we've been living through? You know, gosh. You know, one thing I always reflect on is the student of today, the 18-year-old, we'll say, the, the, the traditional age student, they're no different than 30, 40 years ago in terms of what they're going through. Their response is different because of their life experiences and life choices. I think you know, 30 years ago, the students responded differently. Um, so I, I think Jason makes an excellent point that we have solidified our role in higher education as not just the activities people, we really do take care of students and continuously to help our um, young professionals understand we are educators, we are caretakers, we are professionals on equal um, footing with our academic colleagues to help students be successful. And I, that, that does provide me hope. What happens you know, 10, 15 years from now, the culture, the, the time, the society, what's going on is gonna impact it, but we do have the resiliency. We do have the, the uh, self-reflection to evolve as a profession and to be, and that's not just student affairs, but higher education. We will continue to evolve, evolve and, and meet the needs of the society that we're supposed to serve. Yeah, I think when I think of the future and the hope, I, you know, I think about, um, the Jim talked about the resiliency of us as, as people. Uh, and I hope that we can take the positives that came out of crises such as 9-11, the COVID pandemic, and there were lots of other crises in between those. I hope we can take what we learned from them and utilize those to make us better. So for example, does the world of work look differently? Does how we uh, manage the workplace look differently? How do we use Zoom and other technologies to better enhance the student experience? I think that gives me hope of the excitement of that um, and the, the innovation that that can bring, particularly for those of us who maybe didn't grow up with that technological world. <laughs> so to me, that's hopeful if we can, you know, uh, those are positives that came out of that. We proved we could do things technologically that we never said we could ever do. We never said we could do counseling online. Heaven forbid, that would never happen. You know what? It's happening. It's a big business and it's successful. So many forms and processes, we said, no, that can't be online. Yeah, it is. And we made it work. So I'm hopeful that we continue to be that innovative and it doesn't take the crisis that makes us continue to be innovative that we learn that we can be innovative without a crisis, you know, and, and still continue to change and enhance the student experience. I, Michelle, I don't have a ton to add to that. That was both well said. And the only thing I just always look back to is our history. The one thing that hasn't gone away uh, since it started 
uh, is higher education. So we have weathered every war, pandemic, crisis, recession. Um, so, you know, no matter what, we will have issues. We always have and we always will. But it's an industry that continues to weather every storm that comes its way. So hopefully that gives that should give us a little hope um, that uh, we can we can figure it out and work through whatever comes our way. Well, I just want to thank all of you for your leadership, but also for continuing to serve the organization, for being a part of this conversation. My um, undergraduate history major self was so excited for this episode when Tony and Bo and I first started talking about it. I was like, I want to do an episode on this. And they're like, okay, you know, and, and you exceeded my expectations, which you both know, I would let you know if that wasn't the case. So, um, but I really feel like this is genuinely a gift to the organization. Um, and as we move forward and we face whatever those next challenges are, to be able to look back both sort of in a holistic way, the way you alluded, Jason, but also specifically to look, here are two major milestones in the history of the organization. So the people love SAXA and people will do the work to keep it going. And uh, so just so much gratitude to all three of you for being here today. Um, as I wrap up, so today's SAXA's Essay Today podcast was brought to you by SAXA. That was brilliantly said and not correctly read off of the paper in front of me. Um, but we thank the leaders of, and the organization as a whole for their support. Additionally, the show would not be possible without my friend and producer, Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida. As always, Jen, thank you for your support and collaboration. And I close each episode out with a quote that's at least in some way related to the topic, but I'm actually, today I'm going to uh, use two quotes. So one is, anyone can hold the helm when the sea is calm by Publius Cirrus. But then I also wanted to add from Dr. Jason Cassidy, be kind, be patient, and be gracious. I think that advice really serves us well in the work and life beyond that. So um, thanks again to the guests. Thanks to each of you for listening. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode. Take care, everyone, and have a beautiful day. <laughs>